1: Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, you can turn to Genesis chapter four. Uh, we're going to be studying that famous story of of Cain and Abel, where uh, that story where where Cain uh, murders Abel. And uh, if, if you're looking for a little help, a, a mnemonic to remember who's who in the story, I always think Cain was Abel. It's a little dark, but uh, it helps me. So. But uh, we're going through this book of Genesis, and and Genesis is very much a a book of origin stories, hence the name Genesis. Genesis is the Greek word that uh, is translated from the Hebrew word tolda. And tolda means origin or or generations. And and it's a very appropriate title uh, for the book based on the material, but I would say especially for the structure of the book of Genesis. And so 10 times through the book of Genesis, we come across this phrase, this is the account, or this is the generations of and then fill in the blank. And and it seems to divide the book into a a variety of different sections. So the the first section is really Genesis 1, 1, all the way to chapter 2 and verse 3, where we encounter the seven days of creation. And and that's the the first section, the first part of this book of Genesis. And then, beginning in chapter 2, verse 4, we come across the account, or the first tolda, of the the generations or the origin of the heavens and the earth. And it details now uh, a a more detailed creation of Adam and Eve, and then eventually their fall, eventually a sin in chapter 3. And that goes all the way then to the beginning of chapter 5, where we find the tolda, or the origin story, of Seth and all of his descendants. And so the story begins to shift, and it shifts away from Adam and Eve, and now it focuses on Seth and their descendants. And then in chapter 6, we have Noah and his descendants, and so forth. So why does all that matter unless you're like me, who likes to put things in neat little boxes? Why does that matter for us? Well, I think there's something significant when we start to understand where chapter four falls in there. So like you said, in chapter three, that records the, the sin and the fall of mankind. That's where we, we see where, where, God, or sorry, where Adam and Eve, they betrayed God. They rebelled against God, chose to go it alone. And we see that fall. But not only that, we see the gospel it wasn't amazing that the entire gospel is in chapter three as well God's plan of redemption and and that's that was the plan all right there and then in chapter five that's where seth happens that's that's where we start to now see the next generations that come afterwards so chapter four is sort of squeezed in the middle there, almost like a a bit of an aside, and that's where we can have this story of Cain and Abel but as i was as I was thinking about that about why God put that in there, what's the significance of that i I think I think he showed me that, that what the value of this passage really speaks to helping us understand what life looks like now post-fall. What does life look like now that we live in this sin-cursed world for the, the good and the bad of it all, and, and really showing to us how there's, there's still those same two choices to be made. Much like Adam and Eve had a choice between the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we're going to see Cain and Abel presenting that same choice where one chooses, essentially, to eat from the tree of knowledge good and evil, and the other chooses to eat from the tree of life. And how that then applies to you and I today. So that's what we're going to discover. So um, as we look at this, this great story, this famous story of two brothers. Now, I have, I have two older brothers, and I thought about sharing some stories about my older brothers related to Cain and Abel. But my mom said, if you have nothing nice to say, then don't say anything at all. So we're just going to pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for my brothers. I do, I do. But Lord, we we look forward to what you have in store for us this morning. And and I really pray that we would have a a powerful understanding of what it is that you have for us, what it is that you intend for us now that we live in this world, how we can come and present ourselves to you and experience life, experience your power, experience your love. And so we're going to trust you as best we know how for you to be the teacher, to speak through me, but also to say uh, or to receive these words and make them applicable to our lives. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. It says, now the man had relations with his wife Eve. Isn't that a a very clean term, right? Uh, The King James said, and Adam knew Eve, and she conceived. It's another way of putting it. Uh, Parents, I'll let you figure that out to your kids. But basically, Adam and Eve, they have sex. They have a child. And and now she's conceived, and she gives birth to Cain. And she says, I have gotten a man child with the help of the Lord. Now, what's interesting here is this this word man child is, is literally the word ish in Hebrew. And it means Lord. And so what she's saying is, I have the Lord with the help of the Lord, the second Lord being Yahweh. Now, why is that significant? Well, if we remember back to chapter 3, where, where the gospel was presented, and we saw how God immediately redeemed Eve, how, how Eve was restored right off the bat because God was going to include Eve in his plan. He was going to include Eve in the plan of redemption and saying that the seed is going to come through you. And so I wonder, and many commentators had the same idea, that when when Cain was born and she's making this declaration with the help of Yahweh, the Lord, I have the Ish, the Lord. And was she thinking that Cain was going to be the Savior? Now, number one, she was really wrong. But number two, I think it says something about the faith that Eve had, that she was believing and trusting in the coming Messiah. And so she was hoping that, that this, this Cain was going to be the savior. Well, verse 2, it goes on. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And, and so basically what happens here is Cain's going to look after, after some, uh, the, the garden and, and, and the vegetables and so forth. So he's much a farmer, while Abel, he's going to be a shepherd. He's going to look after some flocks, some, some sheep and some goats and so forth. And, and we don't know how long of a period goes on, but, but there's a number of years that go on in this chapter 2, in verse 2, sorry, where they're, they're growing up. And, and are they in young men as teenagers or in their 20s? We don't really know. But clearly, they're old enough that not only are they helping out, look after in the garden, but they actually have their own responsibility. Again, Cain looking after the vegetables and the fruit and so forth as a farmer and Abel looking after some flocks. And so now they've grown up. And now in verse 3, it says, And it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. And so what's interesting here is a number of years go by and, and they now bring a sacrifice. They now bring an offering to God. Now, a lot of commentators talked about this being a sin offering that because of their sin and because of what happened, they're bringing the sin offering. But the reality is the scripture doesn't actually say that it's a sin offering. There are a number of different sacrifices, a number of different offerings that we will discover later on in the Old Testament. But I think this was just basically, it was that, just a offering. It was a sacrifice. And they were bringing, each of them, what they were caring for. And so Cain, he brings some fruit of of the field, Maybe bring some apples, bring some strawberries, maybe some corn, make popcorn with, I don't know. But he he brings all that as a sacrifice to God while Abel does the same with his responsibility. Looking after the the animals, he brings the firstlings. He brings the first fruits, the, the young calves or the young sheep and so forth, the lamb. And he's bringing that as a sacrifice to God. And it says here that God, he has regard for Abel in his offering. He receives it with joy and with pleasure. But Cain was different. It says in verse 5, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So so God looks at Cain's offering and wants no piece of it. And he, he rejects it. He wants nothing to do with it. Now, there's immediately all kinds of questions that come up as to why did God accept one and not accept the other? What, what was the reason behind all that? And, and I think there's a, there's a couple possible reasons or a few reasons why. Number one would be that basically God is capricious, that God is picking favorites, and that God is choosing one and rejecting the other simply because he can. And there's no real pleasing this God. He's just going to do what he wants to do. It's a very capricious God. Well, I don't think that's the answer at all. Because if that were the case, then then God can't be a God of justice. God can't be good. Now he's just being mean and cruel. And so it's not that he's being capricious. It's not that he's choosing one and, and rejecting the other just offhand. There's a reason behind why he accepted one and didn't accept the other. Well, another possible answer could be that the difference between one was the blood of an animal versus a grain sacrifice, a grain offering. Again, you think about in the in the New, in the Old Testament under Moses how that you were to offer the blood sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, and how that was worth more than offering anything else. But the reality is, in the Old Testament, in those um, in those sacrifices that God ordains, there are times to offer grain sacrifices. And even says to those who are poor, if you can't offer the blood of a a lamb, then then offer something less. Offer some quail. If that doesn't work, offer the little rat or the little bunny rabbit. Or or if you have no animals around you and you can't go trap one, offer dirt. Like it it really wasn't about what you're offering. It was basically make an offering. That's all that matters. That's what it comes down to. And so I don't think it's it's about the nature of what was offered, that one that was better because it was an animal and the other was less because it was was a grain. That wasn't it. I think the the real reason why God accepted one and rejected the other was the heart behind the the sacrifice, the attitude in which that sacrifice was made. And, And I say that because the writer of Hebrews gives us some insight into that. So in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 4, that famous chapter of faith, where all these great men and women of God and what they did by faith, it says in verse 4 that by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. More on that last part later. But what we see here is that Abel, offered that sacrifice by faith. And that was the heart. That was the attitude behind it. And that made all the difference. If I could explain it to you this way, that that Cain's offer was basically one of religion. Religion being, this is what you're supposed to do. These are the rules. These are the, the proper things to do. And so religion is this outward action of service, or even worship, that is really independent and doesn't require anything of your heart. It's in obedience to the law, to rules, to right behaviors. And at its best, all religion is is good-looking flesh, good-looking behavior. But at its worst, it's cruel, it's mean, it's jealous, it's critical, it's vindictive, it's destructive because it will tear down others in order to lift yourself up. That's religion. It very much is embodied in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, meaning it looks good or it may look evil, but the result of that tree, there's only one result of that tree, the fruit is death. And that's what religion is. It just offers up death. And so we might see it today in people who, who faithfully attend church every Sunday morning who are consistently reading their Bible and maybe even offering up their praise and offering up prayers to God, but they're doing it simply because they think they're supposed to. Maybe they think they need a tithe and they're giving 10% because that's what they've been told to do. And they're following a rule book more than they're following a person. And so there's really nothing in their heart behind it. They're just going through the motions. And that's religion. And that's not what God's after. That's not what he's... He's interested in. He's not in need of that. See, he's not really interested in the sacrifice itself. He's more interested in our hearts. In, in Psalm 51, this is, this is David's psalm of, of praise after he's been forgiven for what happened with Bathsheba and Uriah. Everyone remembers Bathsheba, but everyone forgets Uriah. Uriah just got murdered out of the deal, right? But it's David's sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, and, and he's now responding Uh, After God has forgiven him. And you think about it, under the old covenant, what was the forgiveness, what was the sacrifice that was to be offered for adultery and murder? Yeah, there was no sacrifice. You just got stoned twice. So they should have stoned David, brought him back to life, and then stoned him again for what he did. And he had no sacrifice to offer, and yet he was forgiven. And this is what he says in verse 16 and 17. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. A broken heart, a broken and contrite spirit. Now, please understand, with this term broken here doesn't mean that God needs to crush you and destroy you and snap you in two because you're so wicked and horrible and evil. That's not what this word broken means. The word broken really means to be submissive, to submit yourself under another. It's really what we often refer to to it as a horse training term, talking about this broken will of a trained horse. It's not that the cowboy has abused the horse or beats the horse regularly. It's that this horse now has submitted himself to the cowboy, to his master. And that's what God's looking for from us. He's He's not looking for what you and I can offer him. Think about it. I mean, Jim, you're a wonderful guy, but God doesn't need what you got. He's got it in spades, right? He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your your service. He doesn't need your time. He doesn't need your energy. That's not what he needs. It's not what he requires. He's after something far bigger, far more significant, which is our heart, which is that attitude of trust and and submissiveness towards him. That's what he's after. That's what he's looking for. And so Cain, he embodies this religion where he's just Following a moral code, but Abel and his sacrifices is better defined as an obedience to a person. It's a trust. If religion is only the outward action of only the outward action to serve rules, faith is the inward action of trust and dependence that leads to outward action. It's not that God doesn't want outward action, it's that he wants us to trust him for that outward action. That's, that's really important. Yes, Outward action is important. It is important to act and to love and to serve others, but it's got to come from that trust in Jesus first. And why is that so important? Because, well, the writer of Hebrews goes on two verses later in verse 6 of chapter 11. He says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who, who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Without trust, without faith in God, it's impossible to please him. Do you understand that? That no matter what Devin does, how wonderful it is up her singing and, and when she's at school and she's teaching those kids and when she's at home and loving her, loving her own kids and, and loving her husband, it doesn't matter if she's not trusting in Jesus. That, that no matter how good looking the sacrifice may be, If it's not coming from a trust in Jesus, it doesn't please him. That's not what he's after. And so it's much more than just the outward actions. It's much more than just the behavior. It's about the heart attitude. And it would appear that in this story with Cain and Abel that Cain's sacrifice was just that of outward action. His heart wasn't in the sacrifice. He was doing it mainly out of obligation. Maybe Adam and Eve said, "Okay, Cain, it's it's time to go and sacrifice to God. It's time to go and and meet with him. And so he was just going through the motions of it all. It was the right thing to do. And given the chance, he might have even skipped it altogether. But Abel, Abel was happy to give back. In fact, he gave back the first fruits of, of the flock. He didn't keep that for himself and then give God the leftovers. He says, God, this is the, the prize. This is the choice. I give it to you first. And the reason is because everything I've got belongs to you anyways. Everything I've got is from you and from your hand. And so I can trust you with this. And so Abel sacrifices an expression of that trust and that faith in God, while Cain's sacrifice is merely a thing to check off. And God saw the difference in their hearts. And that's why he regarded or he accepted Abel's, but he had no regard and rejected Cain's. And and Cain's response is very clear. It says he became angry, very angry, became furious, irate, and and very sad, in fact. That, That phrase where it says his countenance has fallen, it literally means he became long in the face. And so he's walking away and he's thinking, God, I've done everything you asked me to do, and you you don't want that? You don't want what I've offered to you? You've accepted my brother? It's not fair. It's not right. I, and, and this anger and this sadness begins to overtake him. And really what's happening right now is, is Cain has become jealous of his brother Abel. Jealousy is such an ugly emotion, isn't it? It's, it's that belief that, that what you have right now isn't enough. That what, what someone else has is what you need and what you require. And their having it is standing in the way of your happiness or your contentment and that you need it. And, and that what God is offering you to you right now isn't enough. And so we can be jealous of all sorts of things. We might be jealous of, of other people's jobs or other people's opportunities. We, we might be jealous of the money they have in their bank account or the, the clothes that they wear or, or how they look and their appearance. We might be jealous of the, their spouse and their friendships that they have and the different relationships and, 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 and all sorts of different things. There's no limit to what you and I could be jealous of. And this jealousy is just utterly ugliness within us. Because what it does is it begins to to eat away at us. And we become so self-centered, so focused in on ourselves, so selfish about ourselves and our place that we can't even be happy for the other person. We just look on them with contempt, with just sheer jealousy. There's a great picture of that in the story of Solomon and the two moms. Do you remember that story? where where two moms, they have, they have children at the same time, and one infant, one baby dies in their sleep. And so the mom wakes up, and she realizes her baby is dead. And so she quickly makes a shift because she was jealous of the other mom, jealous that the other mom would have this baby, and she would have none. Well, mom wakes up, and, and, and it's mom. Mom knows that this is not her child. And she goes all the way up to the court, all the way up to the king, and says, This is King Solomon. This is, this is, that's my child. This is not my child. She's done a switch. And Solomon, in his wisdom, says, Well, there's only one solution to this cut the baby in half. You get the left, you get the right. Off we go. And what was the response of the mother who had already lost her child? Sounds fair? Think about how ugly, how disturbed you have to be where you're willing to kill a baby because you don't want someone else to have that baby because you lost yours. That jealousy will drive you to to really no no limit of the darkness. We really become little children crying out. It's not fair. It's not fair, this little toddler temper tantrum. Psalm 73 is such a great psalm. If you're feeling jealous, I encourage you to read Psalm 73 uh, from top to bottom. But in there, he says, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. I love the imagery here. I was senseless. I was ignorant. I was like an animal. I was like a rabid dog. There's just no no reasoning with me. There was no, no logic. It was just, I was completely lost. You see, if we're not careful, this jealousy will destroy you more than anyone else. It will eat away at your soul. And God knows this. He sees what's happening inside of Cain, and so he warns him. In verses 6 and 7 of chapter 4, he says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? Why, Why is your face so long? Why are you so sad? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it." Well, to to understand, I think, really what what God's saying here, because this is such a a critical verse in our understanding of our theology, in verse 7 in particular. It's what Peter was referring to this morning when he talks about the flesh. Flesh or, or indwelling sin, they're synonymous terms used in the New Testament. And this is the first encounter we have with this thing called sin. Now, it's interesting, when we think about sin, we often think about the action of sin, right? We, we think about, as Peter said, the, the lying and the cheating and the pornography. Thank you for that testimony, by the way, Peter. Right? So we think about those evil things, right? We think about, we think about all kinds of, of, of sinful behavior and sinful actions. And that's true of sin, but that's not the sin that he's talking about. He's not talking about the sin, the verb or action. He's talking about sin, a noun. All right, pull out your grade two English here. What's a noun? Uh, they've added the idea since we are, got out of grade two, right? Person, place, or thing or now an idea. It, it's some object. Now, sin's not a person. It's not a place. It's more than an idea, which leaves as the thing. It's something. It's an entity. And in Paul in Romans 5, talking about what happened in the garden in verse 12, he says, through one man, through Adam, in that one transgression, sin, the noun, entered the world, and death through sin. And so what happens now is this entity called sin has entered all of creation, every single one of us. It's in our bodies. That's why Paul says in Romans six 12, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. That's where it resides. And so we have this entity called sin or indwelling sin or the flesh. All of those terms are interchangeable and they are residing in our bodies. And what happens now is is this sin is this power or it's a force. And it's in you, but it's not you. That's what Peter was trying to express this morning in worship, this, this thing called flesh. Don't own it. It's not who you are. It's not your nature. It's not your character. It's not your identity in any way. And yes, we all struggle, myself included. I have to say that because Joy's in the back and she'll keep me honest. Right? We all struggle with the flesh at times. It's all all present in our bodies and will be to the day you leave this earth. But it's not who you are. It's in you, but it's not you. That was Paul's great declaration of Romans chapter 7. He says, I I see this principle. I see this entity that sin, it's in me, but it's not who I am. That's why he can say when he was in his struggle, I'm not doing what I want to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Because what was his desire? Desire was goodness. His desire was righteous. His desire was holy because he he wanted to fulfill God's law. He just realized that the flesh was not going to let him do it. The flesh was attacking and waging war against him. And so sin came into all of our bodies. And, and before the cross, before we, you and I met Jesus, sin masters us. Sin controls us. We were a slave of sin, it says in Romans six nineteen, And so it had this dominance over us. And that's why we had to die with Jesus on the cross. That sin didn't die on the cross. Jesus died for our sins behavior, but sin the noun, the old master didn't die, the slave died when we were crucified with Jesus. And so we're no longer under his dominion, but that doesn't mean it's not still attacking us. Because while the slave's been replaced with someone free, the old master's lurking around and it's waging war with us. And it's attacking us. And it's it's spinning all kinds of, of sinful thoughts. It's saying to Wes that he should be a Lakers fan right now. Right? It's going after him in these, these, these sinful ideas. Now, I, I make light about that, but the reality is sin's not a joke. Not, again, not the action, the noun, because it is, it is spinning a narrative, it is spinning a story for each and every one of us, trying to convince you about who you are based on sin's idea, based on sin's thoughts. And you know what? It sounds really good. When you look in the mirror and you see that person look back at you and you hear what sin has to say about that person, you go, yeah, that that pretty much sums it up. Not good enough. Too much of a mess. Not not offering enough to help to offset that mess. A failure. uh, An evil person. A wicked person. Maybe even a sinful person. And we feel that shame and we feel that guilt and we feel that sense of failure and inadequacy and worthlessness and unimportant. And all of that is sin, just weaving that story, presenting it to you and I. And because it sounds right, we believe it. And, and then it begins to tell stories about Sue, that you can't trust Sue. That, that if, if Sue really knew what was going on in your mind, she, she would look at you with, disgust and disdain. And so you got to hide that. can't let Sue in. You can't let her see your struggle. And so when you come on church on Sunday and Sue asks you, how you doing? I'm doing fine. And we continue to wear the masks, even though they're off now. But now it's not a physical mask. Now it's the, the pretend mask that everything's OK. And I cover up my struggle because I can't let others in. I can't trust them. But maybe the most damaging aspect of that is that we don't trust God. That sin weaves this story about who God is and what God thinks of you and that he's really disappointed with you. That that really you ought to do more, Catherine, and then maybe God will be pleased with you. And we look at our lives and we feel that shame and yeah, that's, that's, that's true. And so how can I ever come to God right now? And so sin's just weaving all these stories and, and isolating us. Much like you think about those, uh, those antelopes, I mean, hunted by the lions. You know, they don't go after the whole pack. They just wait for one to kind of drop away. And now they're vulnerable. And now they're exposed. And they're ready for the kill. And that's what's happening with, this, with sin. Is he's, it's isolating you and I. Isolating us in our thoughts, in our minds, in our, our, our perception of who we are, who others are, who God is. And now we're all alone, sin says, here's a solution. Here's how you can fix that. And it presents to us now a sinful action, a sinful behavior. And in that moment, we're so turned upside down, we're so deceived that it sounds pretty good to to lie and manipulate others, to control a situation, to, to turn to drugs or turn to alcohol or, or eat that third bowl of ice cream or go online and look at things I shouldn't be looking at. All kinds of things. Or maybe just withdraw and pull away. All of these stories that sin's waging against us. And I, and I say all that because that's what goes through my mind every day. There's not a day where sin doesn't ambush me with some kind of of shameful regret about something I said or or a joke that I did that that, that didn't come across very well or or some mistake in my past and it just becomes crippling inside everything and just just tightens up and I just want to run and hide. I just want to pull away from people. And that's what sin is trying to do, to isolate me. And and what happens when I listen to that shame or when I feel exposed, I really, I turn into this whiny little brat. I get really weird around joy, around my family, and I I pull away and I'm, I'm no longer there to support them. I'm no longer there to help them. And the reality is they need me. They need me to be husband and to be dad to them. But I'm so wrapped up in the attack of sin and shame in that moment. And that's what God's warning came about. Think about the imagery. He says Cain's sin, this, this, this noun, this entity, it's, it's crouching at the door. The best visual you can think of is, is imagine a dog lying at the door waiting for someone to come up there. And along comes the post guy. And what, is, what happens to that little dog? Right? He, he just launches into an attack. And that's what sin's doing. It's lying at the doorway, just waiting for an opportunity. And that opportunity often comes... When our countenance drops, when we feel a little discouraged, when we experience some rejection, when things don't quite go our way, or or maybe when someone else got what what I wanted. And so that little bit of jealousy, that little bit of disappointment, sin starts to feed off of that. It says, well, you know, if, if you had that, everything would be better. If, if that was part of your life, then, then you would be finally happy and content. If, if that person treated you the way they're treating that person, then everything will be better in your life. And so that jealousy begins to rise up. That anger begins to rise up. And as, as James 1, 12, or 14 or 15 says, that each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. This is Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Again, death here is not physical death. It's not that you're going to stand in front of a firing squad or you're going to get the chair or, or you're going to bury you in the ground. Death is an experience that we have all are too familiar with. The best description or best illustration I can give to you is think about the last time you sinned. How did you feel afterwards? That that frustration, that sense of failure, that sense of of disappointment, of anger, that's death, and that's always what sin's going to serve up, every single time. Trust me, I've tested it, and I will continue to test it, unfortunately, but it will always result in more death, more frustration, and that's what he's warning us against here. That's why he's warning Cain, be careful, because you now have an enemy coming after you. And that's why we're told, don't let it rain in Romans 6.12. Don't let sin rain that you would obey its desires. Notice they're not your sinful desires. They're sin's sinful desires. But unfortunately, Cain doesn't listen. He doesn't heed the warning. And and instead, he ends up murdering Abel. Verse 8, Cain told his brother, meaning he, he called his brother into a field. And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. The, the first recorded sin after the fall is, is not a lie. It's not a little bit of manipulation. It's just flat out murder. There's no slow decline to society at this point. Society goes over a cliff. In verse 9, then the Lord comes to Cain and he says, Where is Abel your brother? Now God knows full well where he is. So why is he asking him where he is? It's because I think God's giving Cain an opportunity. He's giving Cain a chance to come clean. And Cain says, I I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? It's the first recorded question of 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 the Bible, but it's not really a question. Can you hear the arrogance and the sass? Can you hear the the, the, the sheer the, the, the lying, the, the disdain, and the, the lack of remorse in Cain's voice? Why should I care? Who's able to me? I don't care about him. I have no idea. And then in verse 10, he says, what have you done? What have you done? It, it reminded me of, of what he was saying to Adam and Eve in the garden when he says, where are you? what's happened? And and I hear heartache in God's voice here. Cain, what have you done? Look what you've done. Look what you've given yourself into. He says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. I've read that and I just was overwhelmed. There's a lot of pain and sorrow in this world. A lot of Injustice. And we wonder, God, what are you going to do about this injustice? Why are you letting it happen right now? We see it right now with this war going on in this world. We see it countless other areas where people are taking advantage of others, even to the point of killing them. And God says, I, their blood still cries out to me. I'm not going to forget that because I'm a God of justice, especially to those who've been hurt. So verse 11 now, he says to to Cain, he says, now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Which is interesting, he didn't curse Adam and Eve. Remember we saw that? He cursed Satan and he cursed the ground, but now he curses Cain. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Remember, he's a farmer. And God has taken that farming away from him. When he goes to work the ground, and I bet you he enjoyed it. I bet he loved it. Every time now he goes to work the ground, he's not going to get the produce of it. It's not going to deliver. And not only that, but now he's going to be a vagrant and a wanderer. I believe this is more than just physical wandering. I think it's going to be in his soul. Other translations, they use vagabond, a restless wanderer, a fugitive. Basically, he's always going to be looking over his shoulder. He's never going to be content. He's never going to find what he's looking for. And what's Cain's response in verse 13? He says, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you've driven me from this day from the face of the ground. And from your face, I'll be hidden. And I'll be a vagrant and a wanderer in the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Isn't that ironic? You kill a man and you're angry because someone might now kill you as a response. There's no remorse in what Cain's done. Zero. All he cares about is himself. It's not fair. And, and who are these other people that are going to kill him? It's his brothers and sisters who are angry and upset that, that they killed his brother or their brother. And so all we see is his self-centeredness. But look at God's response even to Cain. He doesn't say, well, you deserve it and much more. You brought this on yourself. It's your own fault. These are your choices. Now you live with the consequences. He offers him grace. Verse 15, so the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. He still protected him. Although to be honest, I don't know if that was mercy. Because Cain would have lived a long life of restless wandering in his heart. It goes on in verse 16 that he, he went out from the presence of the Lord. And I just that, that broke my heart when I read. He leaves the presence of the Lord. He's not going to be able to have that communion with God. I mean, think about it. What was so impressive was God spoke to him. And he got to speak to the God of the universe. And he says, no longer will I have that. He leaves the presence of the Lord. And he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And so he did settle, but not in his heart, I believe. It's such a tragic story, a tragic picture here to live as a discontented and dissatisfied in his soul. So what's, what's the lesson here for us? Well, the easy lesson would be that don't let jealousy consume you. Don't let it destroy you, that, that when you see others having something that you would crave and you would desire, the simple answer is, be happy for them. That's maturity, isn't it? The immature just says, I want, I want, I take. But the mature can look at what others have and just be like, I'm so happy that you've got that. I'm, I'm so happy that you get to enjoy that. I, I can't do it, but I'm happy that you can. And so that would be the easy takeaway. Another one, which is really free, by the way, is that if God confronts you, don't respond with sass. (laughs) Right? Don't respond with sass. That's an easy one. That one's for free. But I I think there's so much more that we can learn from this. Because I don't think, although it's a story about Cain primarily, it's really a story of these two brothers. And I believe there is much more that we can learn from Abel than we can learn from Cain. Remember what the writer of Hebrews says that that Cain still speaks to us today. He's still is speaking to us. He's still is offering you and I today. And there's so much more that we can learn because Jesus says Abel was the first prophet. So he's speaking to us. There's something for us to learn. And I believe here the key to understand, the takeaway, is understanding the sacrifice and the difference between the two, specifically the heart of that sacrifice. You see, You and I, we get to offer a sacrifice, but it's not a sacrifice for sin anymore. Why is that? Why don't we offer a sacrifice for sin anymore? Because I know Ryan sinned recently. So why does he not have to offer a sacrifice for that sin? Jesus already paid it. As that hymn says, Jesus took it all. Every single sin you have and you will commit, which is a lot, by the way, all of it is gone. Already paid for. There is no longer, says the book Hebrews, there's no longer a sacrifice for sin. Because it is finished, it's done. But remember, this sacrifice I don't think was a sin sacrifice. And as I thought about it, here was Cain and Abel were offering a sacrifice that was outside of both new and old covenants. It was just a response to God. And I think there's a lesson there for us: that there's always this sacrifice that we're to offer God. But it's not that he wants things from us. It's not that he's looking at, okay, now you have to give money, you have to serve, you have to give time, and and you have to do this and do that and so forth. That's not what he's after. He's after so much more. And Paul summarizes it so well in Romans 12. He says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Basically, what he's saying is, God has done such an incredible work in you that you're a new creation. You are already alive. You're holy. You're righteous. So just say, here I am, Lord. Present yourselves. As a holy, as a righteous being, as a new creation, present yourself and say, Here I am, Lord, use me. And that's what he's after. He's after you, he's after your heart. He doesn't want a part of you, he wants all of you. And that's why surrender, that's why submitting to him is so important. Because we're not surrendering things, we're not just surrendering our marriage or our friendships or money or job or, or reputation or a ministry, or a church, or anything. We're submitting our very very selves to him and say, God, here I am. Do with me what you choose, because I know you're good. I know you're loving. And I know you want to do great things with me and through me. So we present ourselves to him. Here I am, Lord. In verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect that we will see and understand what it is that God wants to do in that moment. So right now, you have a choice. You have sin waging that war in your mind, trying to pull you towards the tree of knowledge, good and evil. Serve, religion, and when that doesn't work, evil, medicates, drugs, alcohol, sex, whatever it is that will make you feel better in the moment, just, just do it. Manipulate, control, protect yourself, whatever it is you do, but it's offering you and I death. And so that's the that's the choice. We can we could go that route and sin will consume us and we'll experience death. Or we can remember that what Jesus did on the cross set us free. And now the Holy Spirit inside of me, the Holy Spirit inside of me is going to put to death those deeds. They're going to put to death those thoughts. And I'm not going to listen to them. I'm going to reject those ideas. I'm going to reject that story and that narrative that sin is spinning towards me. Instead, I'm going to accept God's story I'm gonna accept what he says. And what he says is that despite my failures, despite my screw-ups and my sins, I'm still his beloved. Own that belovedness. Own that acceptance. And say, Here I am, Lord, reporting the duty. And when that happens, when you get the church, the body of Christ adopting that attitude, the dominion of darkness just is terrified. So let me close with Micah 6, 7, and 8. Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Is it what you offer him? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Sorry, Hannah. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly, to walk in dependence and trust and faith with your God? Let's pray. Father. Thank you. Thank you for what you've given to us, what you've done for us. That you have, you've paid the price. You've gone to the cross. You have set us free to be free. We're now entirely free in you. And we could now choose to abuse that freedom and experience the result of that, which is the emptiness that this world has to offer us. Or, Lord Jesus, we can choose to offer a sacrifice to you, present ourselves, our whole being, in submission to you and say, here we are, Lord Jesus. Use me. Work through me. Make a difference. I pray that we will will be able to acknowledge that and do that, knowing that then this world would see you, a light shining in darkness.